Several years ago, I had the opportunity to have dinner with a friend of mine who happens to be a professor at Ben Gurion University in Israel. And we've worked together over the years, so we have a good relationship. And he stopped in the middle of our conversation and said, can I ask you kind of a personal question? I said, sure, go ahead. So he asked me, he said, why is it that people like you, Christians like you, feel so compelled to evangelize others? Why is it that you feel like you need to make others converts to Christianity? He goes, I'm a Jew, and in Judaism, we're not running around trying to convert people of other backgrounds, traditions, cultures, and faith into the Jewish faith. So why is it that you Christians are so bent on evangelism? Now, he said it in a nice way, not in a mean way, but it's a really good question. And I'd like to ask you if he had asked you that question, or if you've ever had someone ask you that question, how would you go about answering them? I want to welcome you to the final message of our year-long series, almost year-long series, in the Gospel of John. And I really hope and pray that the time we spent in the Gospel of John has encouraged you to love God with all your mind and with all your heart. Because in essence, what we've been talking about is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's what the Gospels are all about. And so I thought it'd be really good for us as we start out this final message to review for just a moment what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Here at Wooddale Church, we have kind of a three-pronged uh, definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it goes simply like this. We say that being a disciple of Jesus means that you've decided to follow Jesus. That is, you are leaving behind whatever you were following before, your own way, some other way, some other religion, some other uh, worldview, and you embrace Jesus. Secondly, we say that to be a disciple of Jesus means to be changed by Jesus. And it's not just like I've been changed once and I'm done. It means I've been changed and there's an ongoing change process in me where I'm becoming ever more like Christ until someday when I stand before God, I am complete. And last, to be a disciple of Jesus means to be on mission with Jesus. That means to be doing what he would be doing if he were here physically. And that's kind of where I want to end our series is this whole idea of what it means to be on mission with Jesus. And that kind of goes back to the question that my friend was asking me, and that is, why is it that you followers of Jesus feel like it's your mission to evangelize or to convert? And one of the things that I uh, shared with him in my response is that I, you know, it's a fair question to ask me, but you know, if you think about it, everybody is an evangelist. Even an atheist is an evangelist. Even your children are evangelists because we are all trying to convince each other that we have some good news and that if you would just embrace my good news, endorse my good news, follow my good news, I'd be happier, the world would be happier. So we try to convince each other and evangelize each other on how to vote. 
We try to evangelize each other on our view of sexuality and morality. We try to uh, evangelize each other on our economic and political views. We try to evangelize each other on our favorite teams or our favorite restaurant. We try to evangelize each other on all kinds of things. We're always trying to convince people to see things from our perspective, from our way. Why can't we then, as Christians, since we all do it anyway, why can't we evangelize? Why can't we share with people what we believe is the best news in the world? Good news that can transform a person's life, a family's life, a, a, a marriage life, an individual's life. I mean, why can't we do that? And unfortunately, there's this growing stigma toward those who try to share the faith, even toward those who are missionaries. Oftentimes, people who are visiting or, or have moved to other countries to share the faith are accused of being imperialists, especially if they come from America, or were accused of being destroyers of the culture. Even here in our own country, in North America, we're finding an increasing resistance toward the sharing of faith. It is seen as being kind of hate speech. And, you know, we're trying to destroy a certain way that people want to live or a certain way that people want to think. An example of this, not here, but overseas, uh, happened back in 2019. Maybe you know the story of uh, a believer by the name of John Chow. Uh, John was a missionary who had a real passion uh, to share Christ with a very remote uh, tribe of people on an island uh, off the coast of India. And nobody was supposed to ever go visit those people. They were supposed to be left alone uh, to you know, live in their own environment. You know, some people were arguing that they were kind of the last unreached tribe in the, you know, in the entire world, and so leave them be. But John, who is a, an American and a missionary with a deep love for Jesus, uh, convinced some fishermen to take him to that island and to drop him off. And over several attempts to engage the, the natives who were living on that island, it resulted in them killing him and uh, uh, being left there for dead. And the sad thing about that whole experience is that when the news hit the media, the secular media picked it up and ridiculed John Chow and ridiculed Christians like him who had this compelling thing in them that they need to go and save people. In fact, some even said that he, you know, that he, that he got what he deserved. And I even read some so-called Christians who said that he had no business being there, that if you're not supposed to be there, don't go there. And that he should have left those folks alone who you know, probably have some kind of a connection with the God of the universe, whatever that may look like. And it's just better off to leave them alone. How arrogant to think that we as Christians have all the right answers. Jesus is just one way of so many different ways. And so that's kind of the, the stress we face. It's kind of the pressure that we face. So let me ask you, do we have any business being on mission and sharing and evangelizing others with the good news of the gospel? Or is that something we should just keep within the Christian community? 
Is that just something that belongs to us and, and to our children as we raise them and our traditions and our culture and they want to embrace it, great. And if they don't, that's fine too. Should we be aggressive when it comes to sharing our faith? Well, I want you to listen to what Jesus prays to his father in John chapter 17. We've been exploring this prayer together, but listen to these words. Jesus says, now I'm coming to you. He's talking to his father. I told them many things while I was with them in this world, so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. We talked about this the last couple weekends. Just as you sent me, okay, into the world, I am sending them into the world and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Now, we've talked about several of these verses already. But I want to focus for just a couple of moments in this message on this whole idea that Jesus says he's been sent. And now you and I, as his followers, are also being sent. And the idea here is something like this. You have, you have the Father, let's say that God, who sends his son, Jesus, right? Who comes to this earth. And now Jesus has encountered these men and women, these disciples. And we'll just say disciples. And he's sending them out to those who don't have faith yet in Christ, like they once were, in order that they may come to faith, in order that they may be sent out. And what we call this is disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. So the expectation that Jesus had is that the Father sent him, and now he's going to send others, and others will then continue this ministry of being sent and sending. And that is part of our DNA. That's part of who God has called us to be. In fact, Jesus got really clear on this in Matthew chapter 28, when he said to his followers before he sent it to the Father, he said, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so now he's going to say, by that authority, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all the nations, of every island, of every tribe, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. What's one of those commands? One of those commands is to go. So as I make disciples, one of the things I got to teach them is now you need to go and do for others what God sent me to do for you. And be sure of this. I love this. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How is he with us always? To the presence of his Holy Spirit living in our lives. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, it's not an option to evangelize. It's not an option to be on mission. You don't have a choice. I'm sending you. 
I'm asking you, I'm telling you that as my follower, part of being one of my followers is you have to go. Now, whether you go personally and physically or whether you go by sending your, your uh, finances or by sending your children or your grandchildren, you're to go. If it's sending your materials, you're to go. If it's sending your pastors, you're to go. You're to constantly be going in one way or another. Go with your prayers. Go here, near, and far and make disciples. Like I have been sent by the Father to make disciples out of all of you. And why is that an imperative that we go? Well, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says to us that the Father is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. See, God does not want to see anybody perish. God has no desire for anyone to spend a Christless eternity in hell. The Bible tells us that hell was created for the devil and his followers, the demons, the fallen angels, not for you and me. And everybody on this, uh, on this earth has a choice. We can either follow the Lord or we can reject him. God does not damn somebody to hell against their will. Hell is a choice I make when I say no to God. And he doesn't want us to experience that. You know, a helpful illustration is imagine for a moment that you get really sick and it's, it's, it's a sickness that's going to kill you. And the doctor tells you about a treatment that can save your life and cure you. So you take that treatment and within weeks you are back to 100% normal. One day a friend of yours comes to visit you and they tell you they're not feeling really well and you ask them, well, what's going on? And they tell you the symptoms and you realize that the symptoms they have are the symptoms you had. So you tell them what happened to you and, and how your doctor led you to this treatment and how, how you've been completely cured. And you say to them, you got to go see your doctor. And they say to you, no, 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 no. I, I don't think it's that serious. I, I think I'm going to be okay. I'll kick this thing before. I've, I've felt crummy like this in the past. I'll be okay. Now at that moment, you can either say, okay, suit yourself and just walk away. But if you, if you know that you almost died and you know a cure exists and they're your friend, you care at all about them, you're going to start getting pretty passionate. You're going to say, no, you have to go. And if it's, a, if it's a money issue, listen, I'll pay for your doctor's visit. Just go and make sure you don't have this, this disease because if you do, there's treatment available and you don't want to wait too long. Get the cure. See, there is this disease in our world, and it's called sin. And we all know that it's affected our lives. We feel its effect. And the Bible tells us that the consequences of that is death, not just physical death, but spiritual death in the sense of separation from God. But there is a cure, and the name of the cure is Jesus. And that's why when Paul went to one of the most sinful cities in history, Corinth, he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. We looked at it last weekend. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In essence, what Paul is saying there is, look, I could so easily be distracted by the 
the sinfulness of this culture, by the temptations of this culture, by the, the arguments, by the philosophies, by the materialism, by the sensuality, all those things that come into play and, and confuse me. But you know something? I've determined I'm only going to know Jesus Christ because he alone is the answer for what ails you and what you need to change your life. And that's what God is asking from you and from me. Having been through this gospel together in John, he's saying to you and me, he's praying that you and I will now, as Jesus was sent, will go and be sent by him to let people know there's a cure for what is wrong in this world. And it's not politics, and it's not sexuality, and uh, it certainly is not the economy, and it's not our programs, it's not our worldviews. The only answer for what's wrong in the world right now is Jesus Christ. And you and I, you and I carry that answer. And our mission, our mission is to take that answer here, near, and far and offer it to people. Now, people can reject it. People can say, I don't want it. People can say, they're not interested in it. But don't be fooled. For every person says they're not interested, they don't want to hear about it, there are so many more who tend not to speak as loudly, who are quietly suffering and searching and looking for an answer. And you and I can't, we can't withhold the cure from them. So what is it that gives us the ability to keep pressing forward in this mission when we're facing the winds of resistance, culturally speaking? It's the same thing that propelled Jesus' followers in those early days to move on with the mission, even though for many of them, it would cost them their lives. Let me tell you about that. Number one, when you're on mission with Jesus, listen, when you're truly on mission with Jesus, you experience joy. You experience joy. I don't know if you caught it or not, but back in John chapter 17, verse 33, Jesus said, now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my what? That's right, with my joy, with my joy. There's just something joyful when you're involved in seeing hearts and lives changed, transformed, when people experience the, the grace of God. There's just something very powerful about that. And you know, it's been said that one of the reasons we sometimes become joyless in our lives is because we don't have a sense of mission. We don't have a sense of purpose. And so think about yourself right now. If you lack joy in your life, if you feel like joy is fleeting in your life, it may be because you're not on mission with Christ. You know, it's been wired into our DNA, I believe, to be men and women and young people and even children with a sense of mission in us, with a sense of purpose, with a, a sense of rescuing others with a sense of living for a greater cause. Look at the great stories that have been written throughout time and history. Look at, look at the great movies. 
They're all about, they're all about a mission. They're all about redemption. They're all about rescuing. I just got done watching the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. I don't know if any of you have seen it or not, but uh, I liked it. I thought it was done really well. And the whole story is about overcoming fear and saving the vulnerable. And ordinary people become heroes because they're willing to make these sacrifices even of their lives for a greater cause to save, you know, from evil. But that, that is starting to fall apart in our culture. That whole attitude of I'm willing to sacrifice for the sake of others is disappearing. Do you know why? It's because we no longer hold to a greater truth, to an objective truth that kind of guides all of our lives as a society. We've gotten rid of this idea of a greater cause, and it's all now become about my truth and your truth and his truth and her truth. Everybody kind of has their own little truth, and everybody has their own little tribes camped around that truth. And what that does to us is it makes us very selfish people. It makes us very independent, me-centered people. I don't have time to think about your needs, your cause. I got my own needs. I got my own little cause here. And so we become focused on ourselves. We've lost that greater sense of morality, that Judeo-Christian ethic, which holds us together even though we may have different beliefs, at least, you know, there was a time, at least in our country, where there were certain principles that in general, we all held to and believed in. And that's why in many ways, though we have so many faults as a nation, I understand that from history. But that's why in so many ways, this nation has been a blessing to so many people around the world. Because at least for a time, we had this sense of a greater cause to bring hope and to bring help toward others. And so when, you know, folks condemn and criticize us, and I understand we deserve a lot of it, they also forget about the lot of good that God has done in and through his, his people who have followed him. And let's face it, there are many in this nation who have gone out into the world on behalf of Christ and the gospel to bring encouragement and good news to others. But as our nation turns away from God and as believers become lukewarm in their faith and journey, we watch, we, we, now, you know, we now need missionaries to come to us. I believe there's only one chosen nation in the world. And I believe that's Israel that God chose from the very beginning to be a blessing to all the other nations. But I do believe that any nation that will govern itself by God's truths and God's morals and God's ways can't help but be blessed because it's the right way. It's the truth. And the further you move away from that, the more self-centered you become. And guess what? You lose your joy and you're no longer salt and you're no longer light toward others. Let me ask you a question. Do you have joy in your life today? Are you making a difference in somebody's life today? Let's look at a second principle. The passion for mission comes from an encounter with God. 
So how do I get that joy in my life? That joy results because I've had an encounter with God. If you read the prayer of Jesus carefully and study it, you realize that, that Jesus comes to this world to offer salvation because of his relationship with the Father. And out of that relationship, he offers himself as a sacrifice for our sins to please his Father, to do his Father's will. And the idea here is that because of our encounter now with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, that we too will be moved to see change brought into the world. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, you have the story of Isaiah in the temple, and he has this encounter with God. He experiences the glory of God. We talk about that, the holiness of God. And it has such an effect on him that he becomes very aware of his sinfulness. And he cries out, he says, woe is me, I'm, I'm a man who's undone. I have unclean lips, I'm a sinful man. And symbolically, a coal is taken from the altar, placed on his lips, and he's pronounced pure and forgiven. And then God says, who is going to go for me and speak my truth to these people who, by the way, aren't going to listen to the truth, but I'm still going to at least give them the truth. Who will go for me? And it's fascinating. Isaiah responds right away, and he says there in that passage of Scripture, here I am, send me. Now, the reason I brought that out is because I want you to notice it's only after he encounters God, comes to grips with his humility, and receives God's forgiveness that he says, send me. You have to encounter God to have the courage to go and let others know about God. You have to have that experience with him. Remember, Abraham encounters God. And what does God say to him? Go. I want to bless all the nations through you. And Abraham goes. Moses encounters God. And God sends him to Egypt to deliver the people. Jesus is sent by the Father. And he gives us life. The apostles are sent by Jesus into the world. And they give their lives. All of them because of their encounter with God. Go and are willing to even give up their lives. How about you? How about me? Have you and I encountered God in such a way that it causes us to want to go, to want to make a difference? Lastly, Jesus sends us out in the power of his spirit and truth. He sends us out because there's a joy in knowing him. He sends us out because we've had an encounter with him. And he sends us out, not in our own strength, not in our own ability, but he sends us out in his power and his truth. You know, after the resurrection, not everybody realized Jesus had risen from the dead. And there are a couple of disciples who were, who were walking down the road to Emmaus. And it says that suddenly Jesus in resurrection body came alongside of them and began talking to them. They didn't realize who he was. And so he asked them, what are you guys talking about? And they look at him like, haven't you heard? And he says, so tell me, what have you heard? And they start telling him about Jesus. And listen to what they say. They say, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty prophet, 
mighty, excuse me, man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And eventually Jesus revealed himself to them. The reason I wanted to bring out this verse is because just as Jesus was known to be mighty indeed and word, that's, that's how you and I are to carry out his mission. We're to carry out in the might of his word and the might of his actions, his activity. That's how we're to go into the world with his anointing, with his power to make a difference. Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus said, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, that's here, near and far, and at the end of the earth. Notice what the Holy Spirit comes to do. The Holy Spirit comes to empower us to carry out God's mission, God's purpose. Why is it today that the church, especially in America, seems so powerless? May I suggest to you that it goes back to something we talked about last weekend? It is because of a lack of holiness. We're unwilling to wholly commit ourselves to God in our lifestyle, in our habits, in our attitude. And we're uh, un unwilling to let God wholly, completely renovate our lives, to surrender every area to him. And we, we struggle to keep our focus wholly on Christ. Because there's so many distractions in this world. And because we think we can do it with our programs and our strategies and our buildings and our abilities and our charisma and our talents. And I know God can use all of those things. But when Jesus sent his disciples out, he didn't send them with a program. He didn't send them with uh uh, materials and money and buildings and lights and drums and organs and all the things that we get ourselves wrapped up in. He sent them out in the raw power of his spirit. And I just wonder if we are approaching a time when God is going to take a lot of our, a lot of the things we've become dependent on away from us. If he's going to let those things dwindle away so that we get focus right focus on him and him alone because in word and in deed when the holy spirit's in control and over and on our lives god moves and god works in powerful and tremendous ways may i ask you are you depending on the lord are you fully surrendered to him we allow him to use you to bring hope to this world. Listen, if you are, if you're going to make a difference for the Lord, if we as Wooddale Church are going to continue and turn the heat up and increase in making a difference here, near, and far, we're going to be met with resistance. We're going to get blowback, as they say. We're going to get pressure back at us. It's in that moment, it's in that moment we have to decide to stay the course. It's in that moment that we have to focus on the joy of seeing people's lives changed. It's in that moment that we've got to decide in our hearts and minds that 
because we meet with God every day and encounter him, we can't help but tell everybody about this good news. It's in those moments that we have to so depend on God that we get to watch his power come through his message, his power, his authority come through the deeds that we do in his name and for his glory and for his grace. But I don't want to create a picture like it's so easy. It's a challenge. And this week I received a story about one of our TTI partners. And though this man is not directly, we haven't paid directly for his training. Indirectly, he's been affected by the training that I do on your behalf in Africa. And I want to show you his picture. His name is uh, uh, Tubi. And uh, I'm going to read to you his story as we close. Because as I read this story to you, I want you to think about what he is facing, where he is and yet how his encounter with God, the joy of God, and the power of God is nonetheless at work in his life in, a, in a, an outstanding way. So let me read his story to you about Tubi. He is a Paul in our Timothy program. That means he's a leader of leaders, and uh, God is doing great things in and through his life. Uh, he's uh, dealing with the uh, ongoing conflict in parts of Uganda and its neighboring villages that has uh, shattered countless families. I've talked to them, leaving devastation and death in its wake. And this, this outcome of all of this has affected Tubi's life as well. You see, Tubi returned to his home on May 16th to find that his house had been completely robbed and stripped bare. And also missing were his wife and his seven kids. Now, it had been robbed and stripped bare by enemies. Enemies that want him to stop teaching and preaching the gospel. That want him to stop evangelizing. And so they're doing everything they can to scare him. To get him to stop and to quit. His home uh, had been raided earlier that day. And while he was out ministering, this forced his wife and kids to have to flee. And fortunately, some neighbors found them and took them in as a result. And he was finally able to find his wife and kids among his neighbors. They were unable to return to their empty house because of threats and insecurity. As a result, they only had the clothes on their backs. That was it. And they had nothing to eat, no place to sleep. And fortunately, some of the neighbors took them in and allowed them to sleep in their living room. And these folks don't have big homes. So you've got a small, small home. You've got a wife, seven kids, and two be living in that home with hardly anything to exist with. Additionally, there were times, the report says, when there was not enough food to be able to feed Tubi and his family. And so they would go uh, for days without eating. Nevertheless, he still devoted himself to fulfilling his calling to give hope to numerous others who are suffering the effects of war as well. Tubi travels 35 kilometers every day. It's like 20 miles to his church each week to minister to believers and to promote the evangelization and training of other pastors in that terrible region. And then to make matters even more challenging, in June of this year, one of his sons suddenly and abruptly passed away 
adding to the grief that he'd already experienced. The next day after his son passes away, his church was bombed and the roof and walls were destroyed just to send a message that you must stop what you're doing. Yet here's what grabbed me in this report. It says, despite all the devastation that Tubi has experienced and his family has gone through and those associated with them have witnessed, he still remains hopeful. He is still filled with the joy of the Lord. He still believes that Christ can change his region, change his country, and change his continent because he's encountered the Lord and the Lord has changed his life. Now, I read a story like that. And I look at that man's face and, and I just think to myself, would I still be willing to make the hope of the gospel known having gone through something like that? How about you? I pray that you never have to experience the kind of persecution that Tubi and others like him are experiencing. But I'm wondering, as we close this series, if you're willing to at least present yourself where you are, as you are, and all that you have and say, Lord, here's my life. I want to be on mission with you. I want to be your fully devoted follower. I want you to use me. I want you to use my resources, my children, my grandchildren. God, I'm willing to let go of everything and everyone. I just want to be on mission with you because I'm convinced that's the only reason you left me here. And so I'm going to invite you at our campuses in just a few moments to express your willingness to surrender yourself to the Lord and be serious about this mission. And your campus pastor will lead you through that expression.